one of their albums is my number one favorite album. You know, like OK Computer, I describe it as like the only thing that I've ever been, I've ever, OK is the definition of how it, of what it's like inside my head when I am unmedicated. I've seen most people say it is get a laptop, crack it all the way open, and then put it up on a stand in front of you so that it's right behind the mic. And then you can yeah. do like Adobe Audition or whatever. Uh, I haven't done it yeah. yet myself. I know. I, the other thing is I just don't have room in my tiny little closet, you know? So um, one of the things that I'm looking into is actually just getting a really small basic monitor and at least just having the monitor. I have enough room for a small little monitor. And running a cable over to where my laptop is and getting like a Bluetooth keyboard. And that way it'll be able to handle all the shit that I need to handle. Do what you do with what you got. Yeah, that's the truth. It's the truth. How are you holding up this week, man? Good, good, good. Quite a week. When was the last time we talked? Shit. Um, I mean, I can tell you. Myself. I can tell you by looking at my my Google calendar. Let's see. When was the last time we? I want to say it was in November. December. December. So about December what? Six weeks ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fourth. Okay. Not terribly long ago, but long enough. Yeah. 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 Here we are in uh, New Year. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a new everything, huh? I know it's a new, yeah, new everything is right, man. Ah, <laughs> uh, so how you doing? I've been all right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> spent Q4 doing a little soul searching. Okay. Because I no longer have the day job. Oh, I really? I told you that last time we talked. No, 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 no. Well, you uh, didn't tell me that. Management was restructuring. Oh fuck! I'm sorry, man. So, ah, no, that's all right. I've I've dealt with it uh, quite a bit. So it was end of September, I think. Oh wow! Was it like a COVID restructuring sort of like COVID related sort well, of deal? COVID COVID killed the entire industry I was in. All right. Well, on to greener pastures. That's right. I got my mic all set up. I could put a little bit more time into the podcast. I got a Voices.com account. I'm great auditioning for voiceover work. Did you uh, get a, have you set up an ACX account yet? I did. Okay, good. I did. So that's, uh, I don't have any books that I want to write myself yet, but, uh, I, I know what that is. Oh well, shit. Fuck writing your books. Like, I mean, I'm sure like not fuck writing your books, like write your book if you want to write a book. But like, uh, the, the great thing about ACX is, or a, a, whatever it is, maybe I, I one of those some sort of acronym is that the ability you don't, you can audition for any number of books to narrate. Um, there are like thousands of books to, to audition for, and you don't need to go through agents or anything like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like some of the books are complete trash, but like they still pay a couple thousand, still pay a couple thousand dollars for the finished product, you know? 
And if you know how to tape yourself and edit yourself together anyway, you're already a few steps ahead of the game. And if you have, you know, solid sounding studio, again, you're even more steps ahead of the game. So a lot of people will just go ahead. You, like I said, you know, you can like look through thousands of auditions and audition yourself to narrate the books, submit yourself and you're good to go. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't spend enough time on that website to kind of figure that part out. Hello. At the door. Ah, all right. Um, yeah, but check it out. It, it's it's pretty it's pretty great. The only reason I haven't really done it is just because it, like you need you need time, right? Like you need the time to like read the book through once yourself to get familiar with it, and then record yourself reading it, and then edit out all the mistakes, and send through like you have to send like a section to the the author or whoever's paying to have the audiobook recorded and they have to approve it and once they approve it you then record the rest of the book and then you send it back to them for their full listen yada 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 but it can pay off if you get really good at churning that shit out quick yeah i mean it's just part of the audition process right yeah yeah that's the other thing <laughs> oh that's not something that we're uh <clears throat> we're too unfamiliar with no but no, I, that's I the set truth. Up a, a fiber account and I got a pay oh, nice. off of a fiber account as well. This guy up in Canada Great. wants me to do a Stuart McLean impression. <laughs> Stuart McLean, if you don't know him, is a spoken word uh, Canadian from Toronto. I uh, know. Stuart no, McLean. I... <laughs> he's, like a, he's like a Canadian Jimmy Stewart almost. Oh, wow. And so I, I took a while trying to get down Stuart's mannerisms and delivery. This is Stuart McLean in Toronto. And I, I kind of had fun with it, you know, go yeah. back to boys class. And the guy that I sent to it on the other end was like, yeah, I like it. So <laughs> we'll see. Nice. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I probably told you this last time we spoke, but you know that Dr. David Allen Stern is having the COVID special. You where did. you can, yeah. Yeah, where you can get all of his shit for half off. Oh. Yeah, you can get every every accent he has recorded half off. You get all of the dig, you get digital MP. I, I went and bought it. I think it ended up costing like 140 bucks total. That's not a you bad get every, deal. It's like 24 different accents, and they all come with the MP3s of each chapter and a, a PDF of the book. Does he go into the anatomy of the mouth like we used to study? Yeah. Yeah. It's all in there. Like each of his, like the first few lessons are like concentrating on where in the, the musculature in the mouth and where to focus your mouth in regards to, you know, doing the accent. And then he gets into, you know, the vowel, the, 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 the vowel substitutes and the consonant substitutes and all that kind of shit. And then he finishes it off by having you like read and practice, um, uh, like a paragraph or, you know, like a, a monologue or something like that, that he has, uh, set up for you. It's, it's, mm. it's pretty well, it's exa exactly as you remember. Um, the crazy thing is though, is they're all updated. This is like on version three. So these were all recorded back in like 2012 or 2015. Whereas the tapes we were listening to were recorded in like 1984, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, so Alan Stern. Is hello, doctor. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Thirty-five percent off any audio downloads. Click to buy all twenty-four accent learning audios for one eighty-five. Fifty percent off Zoom lessons. Oh. Yeah. So there's okay, that. Then. Everyone's doing the pandemic hustle. <laughs> That's right. 
you got to have something going on. I think everybody's yeah. miserable right now anyway. Just you oh. got to try and get things back to some semblance of normal. Oh, Jesus, man. Um, <laughs> It's the it's the fucking uh, what is it? I mean, we're all tired, right? Like, yeah, it's trauma. This, we're this all just is exhausted from it, man. The like worldwide health crisis. It's trauma. And yeah, there's really no other way to look at it. And so, and it's prolonged. You know, like shit. What we're ten months in, and like, oh, look, I'm not I'm not planning on like not wearing my mask anytime soon or getting up in people's faces anytime soon. You know, uh, not like I was walking up to random people in the street anyway and being like, hi, and close talking them right up in front of their <laughs> nose. But like, you know, like, <laughs> uh, like I'm still going to do all that shit, but God damn, man, I like it. Like the, what it, the burnout, the, the, the pandemic burnout is real. And you just hear, you know, you listen to all these podcasts of people who are like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, you know, disobey any of the health mandates but god damn i'm tired of my house <laughs> mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah they call it concern fatigue concern jeez yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't care anymore I, I just somebody cough on me just get it over with <laughs> yeah, maybe i never wanted to smell in the first place <laughs> <laughs> well but you know you lose your sense of smell then you, that, that affects how you taste things too right yeah it's all connected yeah, but you get to a point of where, you know, is is the cure worse than the punishment? And I think that's where some people are because they're like, eh, yeah, take it all down. I don't I don't care anymore. <laughs> uh, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, like this will be a year and a half of our lives, right? That really friggin' sucked. Um like I feel bad for like people in their late sixties, early seventies who may have just retired and they had all these plans to like go do like retirement trips and shit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, here I am spending some of the last years of my life stuck in my house. And I can't even see my kids or my grandkids. I can't even yeah, do that's, anything. That's, that's a bummer. I, I feel bad for those people. I was thinking the re- about the rest of us. I'm kind of like, you know what? We can all deal. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking about kids who were supposed to graduate this mm. school year. So you got a lockdown in March and I'm thinking back to my senior year of high school by, yeah. by March or April, we pretty much knew what we were going to do. You know, oh, we, yeah, we tuned out, you we know, we, we got into Santa Barbara. We knew that, you know, it's whatever the tests yeah. all came back. I, I got to go to work. I want to put gas in my car whatever. Uh, so I'm not too worried about the class of 2020 It's the class of 2021. They've taken a big chunk out of those kids' lives. Yeah. Like they're talking about here in Arizona, if you're going to play sports, you got to play sports with a mask on, on the field. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, I, I don't, I don't really understand that. I understand the department of health. I'm a little bit flexible with the science of it. It just seems like a little bit of overkill and you were a swimmer, right? Yeah. What are they going to do about the swimmers? No, you got to have a mask on when you dive. <laughs> I don't know. Scuba gear. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that kind of shit is going to be put on hold for a bit, you know, what are you going to do? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like for the good of mankind. Right. That's how I look at it. Um, and you know, like I'm not, I'm not good at being shut in at all. It's not like <laughs> I'm kind of fucking terrible at it. Um, but, uh, some people have actually really thrived during this oh, time. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I think like in for like, you know, I talked to, yeah, I mean, some people are built for this kind of shit, you know, well, make seriously, like make us like reconsider, like what is actually important, you know, that I think is the best part. So in, in a year, when we look back on when it's finally over, you know, cause you're, you're screaming that you have a splinter. And then once you finally pull the splinter out, it's this wave of relief. And then you look back and you go, all right, that wasn't so bad, mm-hmm. but it's, it's always better after it's over. Yeah. You start to realize yeah. things like I spent more time with my kids. I spent more time with my family. I learned how to cook. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I, I signed a, a couple of check boxes on my bucket list because of this. I got paid to write an article. Oh shit. Nice man. To do voiceover work. Uh, I got a lot more time for the podcast. Yeah. The challenge yeah. With it is, you know, when you got to get a job, that's a full-time thing. Yeah, totally. So if totally. I get some kind of full-time gig, then you don't really have to worry so much about healthcare. Uh, Cause that's the big one. I, I left a really good healthcare plan. Mm. And now we have to figure out what types of lifestyle changes do you have to make when access to emergency medical care, medical care is going to make or break you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the healthcare shit. I mean, even without the pandemic, the healthcare shit has been so fucking, you know, has been such an insane kerfuffle in this country, you know, that's a word. Yeah. 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 It felt good. I felt like the right word there. <laughs> Just try that on for size. <laughs> All right, so we're recording this early. We don't right. have we don't have a drink in this episode. Uh, I just uh, finished mine. What was your favorite drink back when you were enjoying the libations? Uh, that's a good question. And do you have fond memories of it? Uh, well, you know, I have fond memories of my drinking years. Yeah. Uh, uh, the favorite drinks, I'm going to say that... Uh, well, can I name three? Because I feel yeah. like there's three that all Go kind of it. combat, right? Um, I feel like nothing beat, nothing beat like a really, really, really good bourbon or scotch on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was an acquired taste. I got a good story about why we got into, I got into scotch in the first place. I think this was like, this was post-college because like, I don't know. I didn't know many of us who had a refined drinking palate uh, when we were 18, 19, 20 years old. And if, no, if anyone- not. If anyone did, I, 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 uh, I highly, uh, highly doubted them. You know, <laughs> we were like, yeah, ice house. That's not as bad as nutty light. Yeah. I'll take it. You know, whatever like, we can was, buy it. it. I'll take six. Like, yeah, exactly. Craft beer to us was like Amstel light, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, scotch. I remember my first drink of a really good scotch, uh, came when, um, our buddy, uh, excuse me. Our buddy, Mr. Gustafson went and he spent, he spent two, he was supposed to spend like a, like two weeks and ended up being there for a month in Paris. And he figured out this way to like, when his money ran out, he, he figured out a way to like cook for people in exchange for letting him stay in their, their apartments. That's how he extended his stay. And he said before he had done that, he was staying at one of the hostels and he met this, uh, he met this Scottish guy and the Scottish guy took him out for drinks. And, uh, the Scottish guy is sitting at the bar and he's like, he's like, all right, uh, have you ever had scotch before? And Jesse's like, no, 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 I haven't. He's like, all right, well, uh, he orders two, uh, 
Lafroigs, right? And uh, the bartender pours them in smallish glasses and, you know, uh, being, you know, just barely out of college, grabs it and goes to take it, take it like a shot, right? And right before the glass hits his lips, the Scotsman puts his hand over the glass and goes, what the fuck do you think you're doing? I took 10 years to make. You don't shoot it, you sip it. <laughs> so, so that, so then, so that from that point, so he ordered me like we ordered two Lafroigs, and from that point on, I was like hooked on the smoky PD Scotch, you know. Mm-hmm. So just that, uh, not even on the rocks, just that with like I used to always like, and this is probably just like bullshit, but uh, I would like turn on the faucet and just really quickly wave one finger at the faucet and drip like one droplet of water into the scotch. Cause for some reason in my brain, someone once told me like, Ooh, don't put too much water in it. You're going to ruin it. You just want to open up the flavor. Up the yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Such bullshit. But I would do that. So that, that was one of my favorites. Um, as far as mixed drinks goes, like, I like every summer was Pim's cup season for me. You ever have a Pim's cup? Uh, it rings a bell. Oh man, Pims cover the shit. So Pims Pims is like one of these like no one knows the ingredients. Like some like stuffy British drink, right? Um, it's like a liqueur, but you mix it with like you mix it either with like ginger beer or with that like that um, San Pellegrino limoncella mm-hmm. um, with a slice of uh, uh, I mean this is bougie as fuck. A slice of uh, uh, cucumber and a slice of lemon and lime and put it all together. It's called a Pims cup and it is fantastic. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, a good solid IPA, uh, best IPA, I, I think all around IPA that I ever had, I'm going to say belongs to a tiny little brewery in Colorado called odd 13. And they had this IPA called super fan, uh, that was fantastic. I have so, heard of odd 13. Yeah. So that was a very long answer to your question. Um, and now, now, now though, I'm into the, the craft, non-alcoholic beer scene, which is a lot larger uh, than you might think it is. Yeah, I understand it's growing with the youth. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. I I got, I got a couple and you got to, and the great thing is, is like you can, it's all, you can order it online. They'll mail it to you because it's, you know, it's all non-alcoholic shit. So I've, I've got like three Sixers waiting for me at home that just got delivered today that I'm excited to try out. And it doesn't lose any of... I want to say the flavor, but the flavor wasn't really part of IPA was kind of the bite. Uh, do you still get the bite from the hops? Is that bitter kind of rush to kick it? You know, I've had a few of the non-alcoholic IPAs that are good, but none that have been quite as like punch you in the face with that hoppiness yet. Yeah. This one that I'm, I'm waiting for right now, which is coming from a brewery, they're called um, Untitled Art. Um, they have this juicy IPA that they just released that all of the message boards are raving about. Um, so that is apparently like the now it's like the gold standard for non-alcoholic IPAs. So I'll I'll let you know how it is uh, mm. once I uh, once I get my hands on it. I know there was a thing about hop water, and that was the the water that they kept from the hops before they actually added it to the mix and fermented it. And I guess yeah. hop water is a thing. Yeah, I think that I think Lagunitas uh, would sell like four yeah. packs of hop water. I haven't tried that myself, um, but that for some reason it hasn't really quite like something about it. Just sounds like like runoff to me. It's like hop water. Like, <laughs> uh, it's uh, no. Nah, I mean, it's it's a thing. It's what it is is if you like 
if you like the smell of a good craft IPA, yeah, that's that's the hops. That's what's coming at you. That's the that's the skunky, you know, stickiest of the icky. Yeah. And so if you like that, it tastes like water, but it smells like hops, and that's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm I'm down with the I'm down with the smell. Sure, but I want it to taste like beer. You know. It should, ideally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's the trick of any marketing copy when you read it is well, I would hope so. We have the best service and we always do what we're told. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's like the foundational level right there, right? Good. <laughs> yeah. We always pick up the phone. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> It's like that Chris Rock joke. Uh, yeah. I take care of my kids. You're supposed to, you stupid motherfucker. <laughs> like Goonies. Like, this doesn't really look like water. It's wet, isn't it? <laughs> it's wet, isn't it? Frank. <sighs> I've, uh, I was a, I was an unabashed Scotchman. Mm-hmm. And I knew that whiskey by itself was enjoyable. I tried to get into mixed drinks for the latter half of my twenties. I was looking for my drink. Like what is your signature drink? Right, 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 right. Think of scenes in movies or television shows when somebody walks in and the person is already at the bar, sees them walk in and go, you know, they wave to him, they go, get him a whatever. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wanted that. I wanted to walk in and somebody go, get him a whatever. And I got friends who are like that. They have, you know, did you find one yourself? I tried and I bounced around from place to place to place and I never quite figured out what it was. The difficulty in finding a drink is you have to find a drink, at least in my opinion on this, you got to find a drink that you can have one of and enjoy it as well as <laughs> like six and still yeah. enjoy it. Because if you find that you got to ramp up to enjoy it, that doesn't make for good situations. And then if you start and it's great, and then by like the third one, you know, some of the Sierra Nevada's IPAs, you get to scrape your tongue after the third one. (laughs) Yeah. You got to find one that has a kind of a consistent experience. And so what I found was I ended up just going straight. Uh, Yeah. So it was, it was scotches for a while. I loved all the space side malts. Those were good for me. Johnny Walker green is my go-to. Okay. They discontinued that and then Costco revived it for a while and then Costco gave up. So Johnny Walker green label, I think is gone to the ether. So I've been moving around. Um, A buddy of mine. No, go on, go on, go on. uh, A buddy of mine who may end up doing kind of regular episodes of the podcast with me. He is dyed in the wool bourbon. Okay. I only do bourbon. He says, none of that Scottish crap he goes i want the fresh barrels you know <laughs> i want the I want the warm kentucky hug you know he's okay and he's all okay. about that so i kind of migrated over to bourbons but i've been trying different things all around uh, i do like a good ipa yeah but um i moved over to the rocks tequila just to see what it was all about okay so i tried his terramana and that was that's nice over ice. And then I just heard about the one that uh, Cranston and Aaron Paul got into, which is mezcal. Oh, see, that's when you said tequila, I was like, that was going to be my question because mezcal is the shit. Yeah, I hear so many good things about it. 
I actually think if you're a scotch drinker, then me- mezcal is a pretty easy step because it's got a sort of, especially if you're, if, uh, and I don't know if Johnny Walker Green is, is like this because I've never had it myself, but I was always a very peaty scotch guy, right? So if you're into that sort of smoky scotch flavor, the mezcals are a really good crossover because um, mm-hmm. it's got, they've got a really solid smokiness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to try a really good, um, a really good distillery that does mezcals. I believe they're called Del Magüe. Um, let me just uh, Del Magüe. Yeah. So they've got um, Del Magüe Vita is a really good mezcal. Um, but the uh, um, yeah, the distillery is called Del Magüe. Vita is is the one is their mezcal that I really really enjoyed. Um, and it won't break the bank either. It's a pretty solid bottle for maybe like 30, 40 bucks. Um, so if you're looking to try that, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. You pop that in a little snifter and, uh, sip away. I liked Cranston's uh, explanation of it. He says, hmm. uh, all tequilas are mezcal, but not all mezcals are tequila. And then <laughs> he kind of broke into what it is and why it is. And it's like, okay, so we're, we're looking at like sparkling white wine versus champagne. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. I see so, that. You know, I see that. There's, there's a whole world to explore that uh, I like the idea of having a drink, but I've kind of moved on from it. You know, I, I think I, I say Pim's Cup, you know, because that was the last thing I got drunk on before I stopped drinking. <laughs> ah, the one that got uh, so, away. So it's the one that got away. So maybe I, like I had I had drank a bunch of dark and stormies and then went home and like drank my face off with some Pimm's cups and uh, lost control of myself. And woke up the next morning. and was like, well, shit, I need to stop this. Um, but I had gotten really good at making a Manhattan. Um, I did. Like far, oh, man. Like if you get good at like get, finding the perfect mixture for a solid Manhattan where it's not too sweet. And like, I'm snobby about the cherries too. I don't want any of those like candy flavored maraschino bullshit things. I, I, like I will save up the money and pay, I'll pay 20 bucks for a jar of fucking cherries that has syrup that's like thicker than tar, you know, like those type of cherries, the kind that are just like, you could, you could drop them from like a first floor, like a second story roof and it would fall through the roof of a car. They're so dense, you know, those okay. type of cherries. Yeah. So how do you feel about the old fashioned? <clears throat> also a fan of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I feel like an old fashioned is almost harder to make than a good Manhattan. There is the old fashioned and then there is the Wisconsin old fashioned. Because if you meet anybody from Wisconsin, their, their drinking is like varsity or, or special forces drinking. And so everybody's <laughs> yes. kind of... Well, well, do you make a Wisconsin old fashioned? It's like, okay, what, what, does it require water? No, but that's, What's, what, are, is, what makes it a Wisconsin old fashioned? I'm curious. One of the mixers. So mm-hmm. your your basic old fashioned is whiskey or rye, and then the cherry and the simple syrup, and the and the uh, the Wisconsin old fashioned substitutes one of the non alcoholic components that's very specific to the state. Uh, and that says to, that, to me, that says more about people from Wisconsin than the actual drink. I feel like Wisconsin uh, has a state full of. Uh, I feel like you're bred, like you're you're bred to be a drinker there. Like well, I'm not saying that as like a knock on Wisconsinites. I feel like Wisconsin people know how to fucking drink. 
right? They know how to enjoy it. But uh, yeah. you, know what a, you know what an intervention in Wisconsin is? No, what? So we haven't seen you around the bar lately. <laughs> they got that Wisconsin beer too, the New Glarus. Uh, you ever had a New Glarus uh, spotted cow? No, but I'm sure there's 10 million Ugh. craft beers in Wisconsin. Yeah, but every everyone goes apeshit about New Glarus in, uh, in Wisconsin. Um, hmm. When we went on tour, everyone, when they found out we were going through Wisconsin, they're like, oh, you got to try New Glarus, you know. Um, so I did, and it was good. So they weren't Best wrong. Best Manhattan I ever had was in this underground cigar bar in Indianapolis called Nikki Blaine's. Okay. It's down towards the center of the city. There's that gigantic, like, six-story statue in the middle of the city who was some guy. Uh, but right, like maybe half a block away was this, you know, it was almost like a speakeasy. Like there wasn't much of a sign. You had to go downstairs to get to it. They had all of these industrial air scrubbers and it was a cigar bar, but it was very Rat Pack. It was very Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. And inside they would make all of these old classic prohibition era cocktails. And they, they had a Manhattan that went every time I went to that city, because I went once a year for a couple of years, every June, and I went straight, we're going to Nikki Blaine's tonight. <laughs> uh, and that was yeah. fun. So when you when you find the right ambiance, I think the drink adds a little bit more personality. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, shit, you also got to find the right bartender, right? Because some people just like, I mean, like it, some people just don't know how to make a good drink. Um, I think that's true. You know, like you can follow the directions and still make a shit drink, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like baking, right? Like some people follow the directions to a tea and, you know, they, they got like a, you get a crappy cookie out of it. You know, and other people follow the directions to a tea and I don't know, maybe they're baking with love or something like that. And it's like fucking, it's I like a baking orgasm. There are some tricks to the trade from bartenders that have figured it out. Sure. In my sure. my culinary journeys that I've been going on, it's cook at a higher heat, use more butter, more sugar, and more salt. And the idea is, when you're in a restaurant, you got to flip tables, so you got to be able to crank out food as fast as you can. And when you add those extra ingredients, it just punches up the recipe better and it makes it more flavorful. And I'm yep. wondering if there's a similar bartender's trick of you got to make the drink faster, you got to churn them out. You can still be artisanal and make a work of art, but there are, you know, maybe it's more ice in the shaker or it's more vermouth or, you know, there's got to be some method with which they do that. Usually the, the choice of spirit probably has a lot to do with it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could do plastic bottle pop off rot gut vodka and then <laughs> place it up to something like a, a beluga or some of those that are distilled 600 times. And it's, you're not drinking the same thing. No, no. That was the. But like, if, you, if you're not willing to, if you're like just going to a bar to get shit faced and you're like, give me a drink in two minutes, you're not going to give a crap about whether or not you're drinking the, the Georgie or the, or the, you know, God knows what else, you know? But like, I, you know, I think I, I, I was fine. I was always fine going to a bar and waiting like five to 10 minutes, you know, to get a solid drink. Like, cause that's what's, it, that's what would happen. Like with some of the bars I was going to in Boulder in Colorado, there's a couple of the, these like speakeasy like bars. You have to wait like five, 10 minutes to get a drink because they had the volume. So, but they were taking their time, you know, they were like stirring all this shit. They were, you know, mm-hmm. 
And like, you can either be patient about it and expect that you're going to get, you know, a quality drink or you can be a turd and just complain about it. You know, like, I think I learned that with my brother, my brother drinks. Yeah. The turds. Well, the turds deserve the bad drinks. (laughs) You know, (laughs) my brother is a, is a huge, like his hobby is, is, is a, uh, uh, tiki drinks and tiki, you know, tiki culture. Uh-huh. Uh, so he, you know, he has, his job requires him to travel to a bunch of different cities. He works for Disney. He's a, he's an Imagineer. Um, and so he travels all around the world and every city he goes and he looks for the tiki bars and he's been collecting tiki recipes here and there. And, um, I remember I met up with him one night. I went to visit him in San Francisco and we went, there's two great tiki bars in San Francisco. There's one called the Tonga Room, which is in like the basement of, is it the Fairmont Hotel right in Union Square? Um, you go downstairs, you go into this, it's this giant room. And in the middle of the room is a big pool and a boat comes out into the middle of the pool and the boat has a band on it. And every now and then it rains on the pool and there's a tiki bar, Right. So it's, it's like bizarre. And then it's, it's like, it's totally out of like, you know, 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, San Francisco, you know? Um, and then the shipwrecks cove is like, it's three stories, but each story is the size of like a small, small dive bar. So it's a total divey dive bar. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's only one bartender working the three story outfit. Right. And you watch that bartender work and he's working as fast as he can. But with tiki drinks, there's like 40 million res- uh, ingredients <laughs> in these damn things, you know? So like you watch the guy like pour, like, you know, he reaches and he's touching like 70 bottles to make like one Mai Tai, you know? Um, but when you get it, it's like, oh, even if you're not like a fan of sugary drinks, you get a solidly made tiki drink and that shit is good. A lot of ground to cover too. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to say I've heard of the Tonga room, but not, not the cove. I think it's called Shipwreck's Cove. Yeah, it's cool. Check it out. Next time you're in uh, San Francisco, check them out. They're, they're definitely worth it just because they're so bizarre, you know? Well, that's, you have to find the bizarre ones. We, we always went to Vegas for the rotating bar in Vegas after we saw Fear and Loathing. It's just, you Mm. made a pilgrimage. You had to go. We're going to go to Circus Circus and we're going to get a drink in the rotating bar. Yeah, but isn't that dumb? (laughs) Yes, it is. We're going. (laughs) Yes, it's entirely stupid. (laughs) No, no one should actually want to do this. (laughs) There's no logic here. What this is. No with you people. <laughs> okay, so one of the things we wanted to talk about was we went a little bit into your music career last time. Um and I always like hearing this part of it because it was yeah. it was fun to see. It was fun to watch you walk from one world to the other, uh, because we spent you know a couple hours a day doing theatrical stage production, oh, <laughs> titles, and you know all of the uh, all of the Olivier and Gilgood, and we studied emotional resonance and objectives and motivation, and we we dealt with the. Uh, the different flavors of professor that we had to deal with. And then then we'd go out and we'd be college kids and we'd drink yeah. too much beer and <laughs> dance the night away. And I was always, I was always fond of watching you make that transition from one to the other. Um, <laughs> do you, do you label 
a shade of your personality for each? Or do you think you bring the same guy? No, nah, it's all, I think it's all performance for me. Okay. Um, like, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I, my wife and I get into conversations about this all the time, you know, like my, my, I think, and she would slap the back of my wrist for saying this, but like, um, I have never considered myself, like I would never label myself as an artist, you know, I would always label myself as a performer first. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't know. Maybe make your own distinction there. Everyone can make their own distinction between the two, but I think I feel like there definitely is a distinction between those two things, you know. Um, and uh, like Steph, my she is she's an artist. Like she is she like through and through a, a fucking artist, you know. And like I would you know go into our classes and like you know most of the people that we were going to school with in acting school all knew a hell of a lot more than about theater than I did. Um, you know, my, uh, my, uh, you know, my wife always gives me shit. She's like, you know, of all my friends who wanted to be on Broadway, you got on Broadway and you didn't know dick about musical theater, which is totally true. <laughs> I don't know shit. Busted. <laughs> I don't know Philistine. shit about musical theater. I just, yeah, totally. I don't know shit about it. Like I am, <laughs> I, I'm completely worthless when it comes to, uh, any sort of theater knowledge. I mean, I have a little bit more because of, you know, I've gone to seven years of theater training. Um, but you know, getting into it, it wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't really know all that much about it, but so I always considered, I mean, I always considered the two to be, to, to be flexing similar muscles for me personally, you know? Um, I think the difference was when you put, was when I put like the, like the theater hat on, right. The, 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 there was definitely a lot more, at least when, once we got into school about it, like, um, I got up in my head a whole hell of a lot more on stage for theater stuff than I ever did playing music. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like you got to warm up and every time, if I didn't warm up, I, I always feel like I had a shittier show. Um, you got to think about like, especially if you're delivering classical texts, like what does this actually mean? Blah, 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 you know? And you know, then you all, all, we were in school, so all the productions we were doing were somewhat educational productions. So you're trying to put everything you've learned into what you're doing on stage. You know, it's like a million different things going through your head. When I got on stage with, uh, so I guess I'm contradicting myself here when I say it was the same shit. Uh, when I got on stage with a band, I didn't think about it. It was just kind of like, well, this is what I this is what I know how to do instinctually, right? Um, and I think there's an aspect of that with. Uh, with theater, but I think with a, with a theater performance, there's a lot more up in my head shit about it. I don't, I don't ever actually know that, um, when I think back on my days performing in theater, I don't ever actually know that I was truly, that I ever truly hit it. Right. That I ever truly like felt like there's a performance I can look back at and be like, yeah, like I knocked that one out of the park. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there was just so much going on. Whereas, you know, particularly when I was playing with stir fry, we just got out and fucked around, you know, it was all for fun. You know, we were, it's not like we were pursuing anything serious, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, with a band that I'm in now with my wife, like we are, 
you know, we go to vocal lessons like every couple of weeks. We're constantly rehearsing. We're constantly tuning shit. So it's funny because now when I play music, it feels like I felt like when I was doing theater because now I'm thinking about like where I'm placing the notes in my mouth and where the breath support is coming from to make sure that like I'm in tune and am I blending right with my partner on stage and am I playing the right chords and all this kind of stuff. And that sort of like instinctual thing of like just letting myself like get on stage and do my thing. It isn't necessarily there, <laughs> um, but back in the day, it was. So yeah, I I, I lied when I first said they're both they're both the same. They're <laughs> one's more cerebral and one felt more muscular. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, what I remember is I didn't really start to enjoy it. I don't think until I let go. Ah, I was I was just as equally in my head. Because while it was a repertory training program, we were trying to get the best out of ourselves. We were probably what you would consider emotional athletes. There was still a grade, you know, and that whole yeah. bullshit about being on probation. Oh God. You yeah, know, I it's know. like, well, how, how better to take somebody that's at their uh, most emotionally vulnerable and tell them you may or may not survive this. Uh, yeah. And it's yeah. kind of like, well, you know, if you audition and you get cast as the part, you got to do a lot to get kicked off of a production. So why are we, why are we reevaluating this every quarter as to whether or not you should stay here? And it, it got to a point of where I, I kind of felt you know, probably a little bit along the lines of what you were saying is I, whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to have fun with this. Yeah. And the, the tragic irony of it is once I said, I'm going to have fun with this, I'm no longer interested in having an academic theater career was when they all came back and they went, so what did you do there? <laughs> and I said, it, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. conscious. Right. Uh, this is okay. The, I mean, I, shit. I, I don't mean to offend anybody who has taken, you know, theatrical training. And I don't, I, I of course don't, I don't mean to put down, conservatory training programs or anything like that, you know, cause again, I, I went through two of them. So I realized that like, I'm essentially like talking shit to myself here, but I kind of feel like a lot of the time what ended up happening is we'd sit in these classes, we'd watch people perform and then we just sit there and listen to us all talk. Like everyone had something to say, you know, and then it became like a clever off. Like everyone had something more clever that they wanted yeah. to say about the scene that they just watched. And, yeah. and then, you know, like 95% of what we were actually doing in the class was just bullshitting. And then 5% was actually getting up on our feet and doing something, you know. There was a bit of a clever off. <clears throat> I think uh, the other challenge about this, which may have some parallels to the real world, is we were very much at the whim of the personality of our professor. Yeah. So yeah. you would take one performance, both professors would watch it. One of them would pull you aside and say, here's what you need to do better. The other professor would pull you aside and say, that was amazing. Here's what I thought you did right. And sometimes those would be directly contradictory viewpoints. And yeah. you as a yeah. performer who's taking notes, you kind of have to go, well, shit, they kind of cancel each other out. Then you got to fall back on which one's giving me a grade this quarter. Right, right. Which is all, you know what? It's all fucked because what really matters is the audience, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, they're the reason that you're doing it. Yeah. And I, and I guess that, you know, you're going through these training to try to be the best you can be in front of an audience. But like, we only 
had so many opportunities to get in front of an actual audience. I'm not talking about an audience of our peers, you know, like, like I never, uh, God, I mean, I could go on for hours about this shit, but like theater people doing theater for other theater people is just straight up masturbation. Right. And (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Like, I, 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 like, I don't know. I don't think it makes you better to perform in front of other theater people. No, I agree with you there. I totally agree with you there. I think if anything, it gets you up in your head, you yeah. know, because we're fucking mean theater people, any like performers, generally speaking, I think are, are competitive and I don't know, maybe I'm just an asshole, but like there's a competitive nature to it. Oh, I wouldn't make that decision or, Oh, I, I, I that person's singing out of tune or, you know, Oh, Wow. Why? You know, there's this constant sort of like inner critic going on, you know? No, I think you Um, have to. I think that's the nature of of the business side of it, because you can perform anywhere you want for free. You can stand in the middle of the sidewalk and do a performance art piece. But the idea of getting cast in a show is somebody else is deciding whether or not you're going to make money for them. So yeah. the, the nature of the competitive part of it was extremely strong. I don't, I don't think that's stepping out of turn at all. I think that's an accurate statement about the economics of craft. Yeah. Um, and you can have like high minded ideals that like, no, well, it doesn't really matter what the audience thinks. What matters is that I am creating this art right here, you know, but it's like, okay, that's all fine. But if nobody's paying attention to it, then you're just doing it in a vacuum and it's just a fucking hobby, which is awesome. Like have a hobby, like totally have a hobby, but like, I don't know, like if you're doing something that by definition is a performing art, uh, there has to be the idea of the audience's opinion in there. You have to you have know? an audience. Yeah. I mean, you can't, yeah. it's, it's not performing art without an audience because you take out the performing of it. Uh, what I remember Irwin saying, which is something that stuck with me for a long time. He says, if you, if you get up and you nail two out of 10, auditions you're doing phenomenally well yeah right he says, oh, you, totally you compare that to baseball he says in baseball if you hit four out of ten you're the best baseball player that ever lived yeah <laughs> and when you take that into account you think to yourself wow okay so at that point like that was our third year i think when he said that and i was like well if i had known that then it's more mm. about quantity it's more about getting out there and just auditioning auditioning because then it's a numbers game yeah. Um, and then what I also learned way too late is you got to get in with the directors and, and the staff that know you. It's, I mean, it's a lot of like looking for a job in an environment like now is if you apply, you're not going to have as good of a chance as if you know the hiring manager or if you know somebody at the company you want to go to or if you know somebody high up at the company or if you know a recruiter. And that to me has direct parallels with the performing arts. You need to know the casting director or you need to know the director, director or the producer, or you got to have an agent. Yeah, totally. And you got it. Well, you also got to know yourself, right? Like you got to know like what you're selling yep. and yeah, be honest sure. about it. I think that's the hardest thing is like really figuring out what, like, like being honest with yourself about what you are able to sell. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I am not going to walk into an audition in the hopes that I'm going to get cast for the same thing that like, uh, like, I don't know, some like great fantastic character actor is going to get cast at. Cause I'm not a character actor, you know, mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm just not like that's just not. Have I done things like that in the past before? Yes, totally. But you have to understand what other people see you, how other people see you, at least to get your foot in the door, right? Yeah, I and if you qualifies. can be honest with yourself, then you take that honesty in, and, and then like you're right, like it's about who you know. I mean, that's the only reason. The only reason I got to where I got, uh, and again, like, uh, like the far, farthest I got with my acting career is I was a chorus boy in one Broadway show. You know, which great. I don't want to diminish that. Like I'm happy with that. I'm proud of that. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who haven't done that, and I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying like I don't want to diminish my experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way I, the only reason I got to that point, you know, I went through four years of auditioning for commercials, not being able to get, um, an agent, you know, I I would get in front of these agents and one agent was like, all right, here's the deal. You either need to gain 40 pounds or lose 20 because right now (laughs) the way that you look, we can't sell you as like the fat friend and we can't sell you as the leading man right now. You just look like a schlub. And I'm like, okay. And so I lost 20 pounds and I still didn't get the fucking agent, you know? (laughs) Um, so but what I ended up doing was like, you know, I, I got to the point where like I was kind of frustrated. I was like, I know, like, I know that I want to, I want to like at least give it one last go. So I had a buddy of mine who uh, had a parent that was a producer of Broadway shows and like we knew each other. And I was like, hey, do you mind if I just pick your ear, like pick your brain about like some stuff? Because I'm at a point right now where I'm like, do I want to keep doing this? I need to make a decision soon. And so I, I went in there and she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I would like to like, you know, I'd like to be on Broadway. I know I can sing. I know that I can act. And uh, like, I, I feel like I would uh, there there is a there is like a there is a lane that I can fit in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in that in that avenue. And, you know, we had this honest conversation. She's like, well, I'll tell you, what, I got a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. He's an agent. Why don't I give him a call? And then I'll and then you two can set up a conversation. And so from that, I got my I got my first agent. And that agent was the guy who got me onto Broadway. You know, like the first thing we did together is he had me in the final round of callbacks for American Idiot. And Ooh. then the next thing I did was uh, I got hair, you know. So but that what, what all the only reason I was able to get that was not. It was, it was like a, it was just knowing that there were certain people that I knew and taking, being proactive about those connections, right? Um, Cause so much about it, so much about it feels like you're just pissing in the wind, right? You're just, yeah, you're just standing, no, standing on top of a building, throwing these like thousands and thousands of dollars off the building, you know, like headshots and headshots and one-on-one meetings. And it's just a, it's just a thankless it's a thankless pursuit, you know, and my, my hat goes off to everyone who has ever tried it. Everyone who has ever like succeeded at it, you know, like you and I know people who have been consistently acting since we got out of college and fuck man, like that's huge. Like they may not be, yeah, they may not be household names, but you know what they're doing? They're paying their bills doing it, which is like, holy shit. That's impressive. Mm. You know? And my hat doubly does, goes off to them right now because of how decimated the industry has been by the pandemic, right? So, yeah, and they're—I mean, they're—they're they're just taking some time. They've gotten to the point where they have some kind of stable nest egg. I mean, that's one of the other things about being a performer is it may all stop tomorrow. So make sure you yeah. got some cash. Yeah, totally, totally. There's no, there's no guarantee whatsoever. You know? Did you find it different if you were? Performing somebody else's material versus material that you had a hand in creating. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I, I presume you, know, you were involved in the writing process with stir fry, right? Oh yeah. I, I, me and, uh, one of the, me and the fellow who played sax, I think we're, we're pretty much mostly responsible for all of the music for that band. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I mean, there's, there, look, uh, my wife and I have this conversation all the time. Um, you know, when, when you're an actor and you're just doing shows, you know, what you have to show for it, especially if you're doing theater and all you do is theater, what you have to show for it is a paper, a piece of paper that shows what plays you were in written by what person directed by what person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and your memory of that show. Uh, but you have no, you have no real ownership because once the show is closed, that disappears up into the ether. Right. I mean, there's probably some archival footage out there somewhere, but you know, it, it's not like, it's not like it's going to survive you. Um, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. It's gone. Uh, so there is, a, so there is a sense that you're spending all of this time, all of these blood, sweat and tears you're throwing into this project that you have no ownership and you don't really, yeah, you just have no ownership over. Um, I mean, I had some good times doing shows that I didn't, that I didn't have any hand in creating. I was literally just like a soldier and I'm like, you know, I'm, and by soldier, I mean like, I'm just like an actor. I'm here to like help you with your vision, you know? Um, but I definitely feel, um, a lot more pride over the stuff that, you know, I'm doing with the Fremonts. Um, you know, we've got this show that was supposed to go to Edinburgh last summer. We may go this summer. We're we're still waiting to hear the final word on that. Um, but that's ours. Like we wrote it, we wrote all the music for it. You know, uh, my wife wrote the entire script for it. Uh, it's it's ours. At the end of the day, it's our name. It's our name on the copyright, mm-hmm. right? And no one can take that from us. And we have an album, and we have, you know, a well. We, someone shot the performance of it, and we have all this press about it. And all we can say, and 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 our names are attached to it. And there's like, and there's like a certain sort of like it means more, and it makes you want to work harder for it. Like when I feel, at least it, for me, it makes me want to work harder for it when it's my. It's not just my ass on the stage. It's my ass on the line for everything about it, you know? Yeah. So that's, um, uh, cause I was thinking about what you said before is I, I would consider myself a writer. Uh, yeah. we went through pretty intensive performance training and the parts that I felt were the most fulfilling were the ones that I had a hand in creating. You know, you're looking mm-hmm. at words on a page uh, how, how many times has Tartuffe been done? How many times has Shakespeare been done? Yeah, yeah, you're, totally. You're getting a, a, an alternate interpretation of somebody else's words. And that aspect of it is fun. You can play pretend. But, you know, what are you, what are you really putting into it that allows you to express yourself other than a shade of something that everybody's already done? And so I remember a lot of the stuff in movement class really appealed to me because we had to write all our own stuff. In mm-hmm. voice, we would read other people's work. There was, I think, occasion for us to write our own stuff. Uh, and then in the performance part of our of our training, it was mostly other people's stuff. 
Oh yeah. And so I, yeah, totally. I really relate with the idea of, I don't know if I'm an artist, I'm a, I'm a performer, but in the sense of, if you're a performer, you're usually working on somebody else's stuff. If you create your own, does that then move the line a little bit? I think it does. And again, I think that people will definitely argue with me on the fact that like, there's a difference. There's no difference between performer and artist, you know, like you, you're a performance artist, right? <laughs> Essentially. Um, but I do think that it, it, you know, like, like I'm not just a performer when we do the failure cabaret, I'm also one of the songwriters, you know, mm -hmm. I'm also, I also, I mean, you know, my, I am not, I am not, uh, talented with writing dialogue or scripts or stories or anything like that. That is, that is all my wife's job. Uh, and she is fantastic at it. You know, mm -hmm. I had maybe like, ah, like 5% of what is in the script came from me. The rest all came from her brain, you know? So, but, so I can't say like, I'm a playwright because I'm, I'm definitely not. And I have no aspirations to be, but I'm definitely a songwriter. Um, and I'm definitely, you know, uh, a musician, you know? So I, 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 yeah, I do think that when you add like the, 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 the creation aspect to it, 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 it should push the line. But again, people can argue, people would probably argue with me the fact that like, no, 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 no. Even if you don't write or create it, you as a performer are an artist. And I, I would, I'm not saying that they're wrong I, I, at all. I, I, I don't think that they're wrong. I just think I have weird, a weird hang up in calling myself an artist. And I don't really know where that came from, to be honest. Hmm. Well, it's you, you know, you, yeah, well, maybe you're <laughs> still trying to figure out, figure myself out after 40 years. I don't know. I, I think about, so some of the things that you were saying before is when you get up on stage, it's, I know how to do this. This is who I am. I've done this before. Mm -hmm. You feel like it's effortless, even though you're working, you're up there and you're screaming and your and your body's moving and you're playing an instrument. Uh, you're working the crowd. You're, you're working the space. You're exploring the space, Gene. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, you are working. It just doesn't feel like work. And maybe that's where, that's where the joy of it comes from. If you watch somebody that you see is genuinely having a good time, you as an audience member, that's infectious. You know, if you see somebody up on stage who's just struggling to get through it and you're thinking to yourself, why are you, why are you up there? Why are you, why are you doing this? Why yeah. are you doing this to yourself? And why are you doing this to me? I paid money for this ticket. Right. 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 Um, there's, there's certainly a, a separation there. Um, Cause I, I remember seeing you do stuff that I thought you, you were having a ball. Um, and I know that when you were up on stage playing music, you were having a ball. So I was curious if there was a trigger uh, in your brain, but no, if it's, if you're thinking about everything that you're doing, I can see how it would take you out of it. Yeah. It's funny. Like, what do you mean by if there's a trigger? So there were, there were moments, I think, um, I'm going to quote Erwin again. There were moments when Erwin was like, you need to be buttoned up. Uh -huh. You, you work better. You Justin work better when you're in a suit and tie or when you're in a very polished and put together costume, like the entire ensemble needs to be there. Yeah. And then there were other moments when I thought you were just fucking around. And that was really, that was a ton of fun. Um, I, there were moments when you could see that, but there were also moments of just pure bliss when you were just laughing. Um, and I think that comes down to it. And there's, 
I don't know as a performer, I don't know that you can do that. You can just, you know, everybody says, well, just relax, just be yourself. And it's, well, there's some stakes to this performance. Yeah. Yeah. That whole be yourself thing is, is, uh, uh easier said than done. Right. You got to be really, 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 really comfortable with who you are, or mm-hmm. you have to know the material cold. Yeah. Yeah. Like you get, like you got to get into your, into your lizard brain. Right. Yeah. So that like, if you can get it, so if you can get it down cold, then, and you know, it so well, you could do it with your eyes closed, you know, that's, that's great. Then, then you run, but then you run into the, into the issue of like, do you get stale? Are then you just going through the motions? Right. There were, there were times on some of those <laughs> big productions where yeah, fuck another one. Oh, we're going to do a Dude. double header on Sunday. Yeah. At, at times you were, going through the motions. The way I looked at it was, again, you think of the audience, who's going to come to the first Sunday versus the second Sunday, or maybe that's it's like that on Saturday as well, or who's going to come to the Tuesday versus the Friday. You kind of save up your energy level for Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and then if you were going to take a break, you might, you know, downshift a little bit. Uh, or, I definitely or who's going to come to the 40th Sunday, right? Yeah. Like, if you're doing a, if you're like, I mean, that's, that's the real challenge. I think, you know, like whether you're, whether you're performing, I mean, you, you, you read stories about these bands that perform like a hundred plus shows a year. Right. And it's like, fuck, that's a, that's a third of the year that you're playing a show. Right. Mm-hmm probably playing very similar set lists, right? Same um, songs you, over and over. Same songs over and over and over again. Like, how do you, because I think that the, the, I believe that it's your responsibility as a performer to make sure that every audience feels like they got their time's worth, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to, um, it's critical. Yeah, it's, to- it's totally fucking critical. So like, Man, I mean, every every show should feel like the first night. Whether you're playing music or whether you're whether you're um, it should have that energy, right? Whether you're a musician uh, or you're an actor or, or God knows what. I mean, every every show should have a feeling of the first night because, and maybe not the first. Fuck, I don't know. It it should have that importance, right? Because we all know we fucked up the first nights. I mean, how many fucked up first nights are there, right? Well, yeah, this first night was just essentially the last rehearsal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> opening night was if you flubbed a line uh, by opening night, it was like, no, nah, I mean, you're, you're done. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you could flub up some blocking, or the the guys couldn't get the lighting timing right. Now, those are those are the fun parts of opening night because that's a that's a real visceral energy. It's like being on the high dive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you're right. If you if you get into a run that goes on more than what would you say maybe 20 shows yeah uh, at that point it comes it's a job you're gonna you're gonna go to work yeah. you're gonna do a job and that's i think that's the benefit of the understudy i mean you don't really have an understudy in the music business do you no 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 <laughs> I mean, singing on no, vocals you're... tonight for you will not be me <laughs> Yeah, no, in that case, people. like they, they, they just cancel the show, right? If someone's sick, they just cancel the damn show. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and God forbid you're doing one of these long runs and the show sucks, you know? Like I, I was in a, 
I, I'm I'm not gonna say where it was or what it was because I don't want to offend anybody who was in it. But I was in a terrible, <laughs> terrible <laughs> Shakespeare production at a very, at a very like well known professional regional theater. That's all I will say is it was terrible. Oh man, that show was it was like unabashed. I will unabashedly say that the show was fucking awful, right? And we had to perform it for three goddamn months, like mm. eight shows, eight shows a week. And ooh, that was a tough pill to swallow. But like you get you get shit like that. Like people, I'm still getting paid, right? I'm still getting paid well to do this. And people are still paying like not cheap prices to come and see it. So it's still my job to do as good a job as I possibly can within the confines of this shitty show, you know? I mean, granted, I went home every night and probably like drank half a bottle of whiskey, but like... <laughs> <laughs> like, oh man, those are the experiences you save for the young kids. Oh, so you want to be an actor, huh? Let me tell uh, oh, a story. God. Good lord, good lord. <laughs> You're gonna do I mean, the that's merchant what, that's of about... in the rain for 36 oh, shows, and yeah. we're gonna pay you eight dollars an hour. Oh man, I mean, that's the one thing about educational theater, right? Is like at least then you only have to do a show for like two weeks max. So, like, mm -hmm. if the show sucks. I mean, because we we all took part at, at UCSB. We all took part in some stinkers. There were some stinkers. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so you had to audition every quarter, every every semester. Yeah. You had to audition for for the two major productions, and then you were kind of left on your own devices to do whatever you wanted to do. And, and we all bounced around. We would go with the yeah. the one X or the director's mm -hmm. track, or yep. you know, you could you could crawl across campus and hit up the the film students. There was always <laughs> something to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, you would get caught with some directing students. Where it's like, oh, you really don't want to do this. Oh, I know. <laughs> that just, uh, what can you do, man? Like, mean, what can you do? Like, we've all, like, every, like, I, that's the other thing, too, man. I, I think that, like, I think a majority of shit out there are stinkers, you know? And that's just the nature of it. It's hard to make a good piece of art it's fucking difficult and maybe some people write like one incredible song maybe some people write that one show and never hit it out of the park again right i mean god damn how many chances are we going to give m night Shyamalan? right <laughs> like <laughs> you know <laughs> oh you mean a dark and eerie slowly building narrative that ends with I a critical twist uh, yeah, and the, and then the twists are like the alley, like ninety nine percent of the twists are like that's it. It's the trees. Come on, it's formulaic. Uh, Jesus, I think everybody just keeps trying to catch lightning in a bottle. It's like no, he had a good run. Yeah, yeah, and then there's others who just have it right. Yeah. There are other people who just they figured it out, or they were born with it, or it's something that like there is just some shit you cannot teach. Somehow their well seems to have no bottom. Infinite potential, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you look at like newer artists who you think might, like I like getting this whole idea of like, like okay, who's, who's going to be the next person that we're going to be listening to for the rest of our lives, you know? So we we haven't gone into it yet. Uh, we kind of danced around it. Do you wanna you wanna talk about those doodles that you were doing on Instagram? 
Shit, yeah, man. Totally. Uh, you're certainly not the first person to recognize your anxiety. We all have it. Um, oh, yeah. It was yeah. an interesting way with which you dealt with it. Uh, I think most of us have the Donnie Darko rabbit behind us. <laughs> um, you put it out there. And that's there. there is something to the concept of bravery is... Well, one, putting it out there, obviously, is it's got to be therapeutic for you, but recognizing it and owning it. Uh, what was your process on that? Oh, God. Um, well, you know, the, the doodles, well, it's funny because like I spent, I had my first massive panic attack three months after I moved to New York City. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd never felt anything like it. I was like, what the fuck is this? I had no idea what it was all about. Um, and uh, then... By that time, then I got out of grad school and, you know, I was unmedicated and I didn't have health insurance for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And so throughout most of my 20s, I, I dealt with a, a, an anxiety disorder, you know, and finally I got on some medication and, you know, started going to therapy, which are first steps towards, you know, coming to, to any sort of um, ability to cope with, with, with the shit, right? Um, you talk about so, it, yeah. Yeah. And so by the time, by the time, fast forward to by the time we get to these doodles, and I think the the first one I posted was like in 2018. In 2018, by the time 2018 rolled around, I was, I, I, my anxiety disorder was not an issue for me anymore. Um, I was off my daily medication. I hadn't mm -hmm. been taking medication for five or six years. Uh, 2018 came around and all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it's a behavior that I'd had, you know, for a long period of time, but I never really thought much about it. Um, I got diagnosed with um, a mood disorder uh, called IED, uh, which is, uh, it's, it's intermittent explosive disorder. And it's Ooh. essentially, it's like, um, it's like a, like a, like a step sibling to bipolar disorder, right? Okay. Um, okay. It's a new definition that came out with the DSM-5. And the only reason I found out about it is because my behavior was ruining my marriage. Like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, like I would just go into these white, white out anger flashes that would not last very long that would be caused by nothing, um, that were, uh, sadly, uh, uh, and consistently, um, targeted at my wife. And, um, they, when I came and they were traumatizing to her and she essentially, you know, got to a point where she was like, listen, bro, um, you need to figure your shit out or I cannot, I cannot stay married to you. Mm. Um, so, you know, and it all culminated with, um, <laughs> it all culminated, uh, one night in, this is uh, like, I, there was one evening where, you know, I, I heard a bang on my door. Uh, I came out of one of these white hot anger moments to answer the door. And there were three police officers ready to arrest me. Ooh. Someone had called the cops because they heard me screaming at my wife. That'll wake you up. It was fucking terrifying for her, you know? And like, I can't imagine what it's like to be on the other side of w what I become in those situations. And a lot of people who know me, uh, knew me very closely, never experienced that behavior because for some reason it only tend tended to come out in towards those who were closest to me. Like my mom has seen it. Mm -hmm. 
my wife has seen it, and maybe a couple of girlfriends. It's always like significant others or my mother, right? Um, and so basically it's just these, when I started these doodles, I had been on this new um, mood stabilizer medication mm -hmm. for, at that point, I had been on it for about uh, six months. Um, when I got diagnosed, right before I got diagnosed, I enrolled myself into a, uh, a, uh, a domestic violence class um, for domestic abusers. Um, and uh, it was this, I had to, every Thursday night for six months, I had to drive like 40, like an hour and a half into downtown Denver. And I would sit in this room with eight to 10 convicted felons who were all court mandated to take this class. I was the only person who was there voluntarily. You were the volunteer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, 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 you know, so I sat in this room with these guys who had, who had all been in the system, you know? Um, and uh, <clears throat> so just after um, I finished the class, um, I had been on the medication for six months and I started, I had to start, I started, my doctor started experimenting by putting me on, um, on, uh, Adderall in addition to the, um, the medication I was on. Now I'm on a medication that's called Depakote and it's, um, it's what's used for bipolar disorder. It's also, it originated as a, an epilepsy, an epilepsy medication to mm -hmm. prevent, um, uh, you know, um, seizures. Um, so that particular cocktail just fucked me up. And I was sitting at the table. This was like, right. It was like Thanksgiving break. We were in Nebraska visiting your parents and I drew, and I was just like, like sitting there for hours, just feeling fucking awful. And I drew, drew the first of all of this series of doodles. And, and initially, initially I just drew this one. I was just like, uh, I'll post this to Instagram. Right. And then all of a sudden, like the next night I did a different one. And the next night I did a different one. Next thing I know, like six months go by, you know, and I had, I had put like somewhere between like 40 or 50 of these, of these doodles up. Um, mm -hmm. I remember. And it became a way for me to sort of like, like you, like you mentioned, it was just a really therapeutic way for me to kind of like recognize like this new, not new behavior, but this new diagnosed issue that I essentially would have to be dealing with for the rest of my life. Right. Um, some of this shit isn't solvable. Some of this stuff is just like, you know, here is something. And I go back and forth with this issue all the time because like I haven't been perfect since this, you know, I've had moments where like my ability to keep control of myself has lapsed and I have to keep coming back to the table and figuring out the perfect, uh, whether or not it's the perfect cocktail of medicine or it's the, I like the perfect cocktail of like personal behaviors that I need to take, take part in. It's, it's, it's evolving. And I think I've finally gotten to a point now where I know what, what the combination is. But this series of doodles was just a matter of me just trying to kind of like, it became, it started as something just to put out there and just try to be honest about. Not that anyone really gave a shit. Cause like, it's not like, I, I wasn't like doing, going like, pay attention to me people and my issue, you know, and this thing. It was just more so just like, hey, I suffer from this crazy thing and I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and then, you know, people started reaching out to me and say like, hey, I suffer from some shit too. It's not the same thing that you suffer from, but but I suffer from other things. And thanks for talking about it. It's good that we talk about this kind of stuff. And that then became the point because like if we don't, if we don't make it normal for people who suffer from any sort of like 
disorder or, you know, uh, uh, affliction to seek help, to talk about it. If we continue to like stigmatize, you know, mental health as it has been stigmatized throughout all of fucking history, it's never going to get better. Right. We're like, we're never going to move the conversation forward. Um, and so, I mean, who the fuck am I? Like, I, I'm just like, I'm just like doing these little things and putting them on my Instagram feed and that's it. You know, so it's not like I'm really, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm changing the world or anything like that, but it forced, it, it caused me to enter into a conversation and learn a lot more about mental health. Um, so yeah, sorry. I, I realized I, I, I'm talking a blue streak right now, but, um, no man, that's, that was the purpose of the question because yeah. I think part of, part of mental health are legitimately clinically diagnosed scenarios like you're talking about like you have been evaluated by a medical professional and they have determined that there is a chemical imbalance i think there's a far larger uh, section of society that just deals with these things i mean i've i've talked to therapists about rage anger Mm -hmm. how you deal with it Mm -hmm. what uh what he told me is everybody has anxiety if you don't have anxiety, you're lying to yourself uh, or you're just a liar. It's everybody has anxiety. Mm-hmm. How you deal with it really determines the, the type of personality that you've developed in terms of your, I'm thinking of the matrix, you know, what, how do you see yourself? Uh, in other words, what is your self image? What is your, mm-hmm. what is your reflective self image? Who do you, who do you see as you and a lot of it has to do with how well you feel you have control over yourself right if it's an outwardly projected rage it's that you feel like you should have control if you turn it inwards and it becomes toxic and it starts to affect your relationships and it kind of metastasizes inside you then that's your feeling of not being in control and there's different ways to treat it Um, so i was really angry because I felt that and I'm trying to remember how we, how did we have this conversation? It was um, when I have my outbursts, it's because I feel like I'm being crowded. Mm. And what I really, I just, I needed to, I needed to find solitude so that I could process it. And then after I processed it, I would figure out cause and effect and I could try and, lay it out in a logical manner that worked for me. And then I could come back and I could re-engage and everything would be fine. But, you know, if somebody chased me down that rabbit hole, then I got really, really uh, outwardly aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's, it's near where you were talking about. I was very cognizant of what I was doing, but it was very much the need to get away from me right now because I need to deal with this. Yeah. And the more you stick around, the worse it's going to get until I deal with this. Yeah. And then the opposite happens where it completely internalizes it. And then you as a person just shuts down completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes a lot to, I think, passive aggression to where if you don't deal with it, uh, it'll come out as sarcasm and sarcasm is a form of anger. Yeah. So, um, you know, some of these, I'm looking at some of the, the notes from our conversation here. Uh, recognize when you're fighting, both sides will discharge hurtful daggers targeting each other's most vulnerable facets. You can't take the daggers back and it's hard to not take them personal. This supports the need for taking a timeout. 
a lot of it has to do with not losing face. Um, the real winner uh. in any fight is the ability of two people to make up and move forward. Realize the consequences of your anger. Here's the good one. This was the one that was kind of an eye opener for me. Acknowledge your anger as being an automatic response to your feelings being hurt. Uh, recognize yeah. your anger as being respect worthy. Anger is what makes us human. Being angry does not mean we're bad. It means we're hurting in some way. And then, of course, recognize the many ways anger expresses itself. Dangerous driving, sarcasm, leaving a mess for somebody else, um, depressing, not listening, producing poor quality work. Anger seeps out unconsciously, creating conflict unknowingly. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like anger is a natural human emotion, right? My, uh, my therapist has always said to me, like, you don't have to control the way you feel. What you do have to control is the way that you react to the way you feel. Yeah. Or the way that you, the way, the way that you then act upon that, right? That's what you have control over. Yeah. That's what you need to learn control over. Um, so it's not like don't ever get angry again, right? It's like get angry, but be responsible about it. Don't get angry and then scream in someone's face. Right. And particularly like, I mean, fuck like us as like, I don't think I'm making an overgeneralization here, but I feel like you and I belong to a generation of men who were raised by fathers who like grew up as kid in the, kids in the fifties and sixties, you know, like, Oh, real men do this. And real men don't talk about their feelings and real men, blah, 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 blah. You know? And then, and then like we came up in like, yeah. it's And so like, we weren't, we weren't trained to actually like talk about shit. And it, I, it has not boded well uh, for us as functioning members of society, generally speaking. Um, no, no you know, but like I, I think I there's also a, if you get mad, then you have to do something about it. And yeah. Yeah, there, there's elements of what you just said regarding pushing your feelings down and not dealing with them. But then the yep. other part of, you can separate feelings and actions. Like if you're angry, that's cool. Be angry. Angry can uh -huh. be focus. Angry can, can help you get stuff done. It can be a motivator. You can channel it. But if you channel it into violence in the form of your fists or your words, then you're just creating damage to make yourself feel better. Um, right. And, and if it comes out, sorry, go on. No, I was just saying it feels a lot, it's a lot more common than, um, it's not to disparage anybody that is struggling with legitimate mental health, but it's a lot more common than people realize. And you don't have to qualify it as mental health. It's, it's part of your humanity, but how you deal yes. with it is very distinct. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not saying we're all walking. I'm not saying like we're all walking. Everyone's walking out there like with some sort of undiagnosed mental, mental disorder. Right. Um, but like we're still learning how to admit that like we don't always have fucking control. Like just because you're, you might not suffer from some sort of mood disorder or anxiety disorder or depression, just because you don't suffer from those things doesn't mean that you shouldn't fucking have a therapist. I mean, everyone should have a therapist because we, I think everyone needs some unbiased person to help them suss out the way they feel about shit. Cause you like, gotta, yeah, you got to talk about it feelings are fucking hard and like you can talk about it with your friends and that can be really, really helpful. And you can talk about it with like your family and that can be really, really helpful. At the end of the day, your friends and your family, they are 
if you have good friends and good family, they will always be on your side, right? Unless you are doing something like, unless you're like, you know, being a, a, a menace to society and like committing like awful, 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 unspeakable crimes, right? But th- they're going to be on your team, right? And but they lack professional training in how to deal with this stuff. Right. They also lack the perspective to responsibly offer the other side, right? Or offer the ability to actually to, to shine back on you what your behavior looks like. No, that's you a know? good way to put it, to to responsibly offer the other side. Yeah, most people will will take it as an affront or they'll get personal and they'll reflect mm-hmm. what they're feeling. And it's like, no, this is my time. Yeah. Yeah, because we want to be validated, right? And yeah. like, I, it's very easy for me to like, after I get in an argument with, you know, if I get in an argument with my wife, it's very easy for me to like call up one of my friends and be like, can you believe this? And have them go like, I know, you know, but like that doesn't serve me. You know, it doesn't serve me to have someone in my court because I'm already very strongly in my court, right? What does serve me is to like bring up the situation with my therapist and have them be like, well, listen to what the way that you put this yeah. or Okay, let me rephrase the way that, you know, this may have gone, because then it's kind of like, oh, uh, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do bad. Uh, I didn't think about it that way. Oh, no. You know? <laughs> you do bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Me do bad thing because brain chemical work bad. Yeah. What I think happens on the, the flip side of that is the very, very dangerous notion of not acknowledging that feeling that compels you to want to give an excuse. Yeah. Does that make, does that make sense? I think so. I think so, so. If somebody says you want to go and, and, uh, and go to this person's house for dinner on, on Saturday night and you don't, and that's totally okay. Yeah. But if you don't take responsibility for that, you're just creating a, a litany of problems that are eventually going to compile on themselves like a, like a train wreck. And that to me is the little microcosm of what I was getting out of, out of those doodles. Now you're really dealing with something. So I don't want to minimalize what you were going through, but that was my interpretation of that is, Oh, he's finally saying something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that like what they became to me as a way to really like be honest with myself about, about what I was going through and accept that there was something that, um, well, and I still have a problem. Look, it is still a process, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like I tried, like I'm now on two medications. I have to take a, I now have to take an anti-anxiety med, not for anxiety, but what it does is it gives me a little bit of, it gives me two seconds longer to respond to an outside stimulus. Ooh, okay. So if, so that it, let's say my wife and I are in a testy conversation, right? And she says something to me that might, uh, that, that might have in the past ignited some sort of completely irresponsible response, right? Mm-hmm. What the second medication does is it causes me to actually like take a few more seconds to breathe before I respond. Mm. Right now. I had been on that medication for about three months and I was like, I started feeling bad. I'm like, fuck it. it I have to take two medications just to be a fucking human. You know, That's I feel great. Yeah. Things are going great. You know, I don't need the second medication anymore. And so I made the decision to get off the medication. Now, granted, there were some other outside things going on. I made the decision to get off the, the second medication 
and I had another fucking slip up, you know, and those slip ups cost my marriage too, too fucking much, mm. you know, and it's like, shit, you know, like, okay, I got to be on it. And like, so by doing these doodles, it's a matter of like looking at my behavior, understanding that like, like taking ownership of it, being honest with myself about it. Cause if you look through them, like they don't represent me in the best, some of them don't represent me in the best light at all, you know? And I don't, I, I didn't do them in that way to like ask people to be like, oh, wow, man, that must be rough. No, it's, it's more so just being like, I'm trying to be honest with myself about the fact that like, you know, if I don't be hyper vigilant with like my self care, it affects those closest to me. Um, and if I'm not honest with myself about how my behavior has affected those closest to me, then I will never actually accept um, what 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 it is that uh, that that I'm that oh, man. I'm not saying this well. Um, I think you're a little horned, dude. Everybody has one, mm-hmm. and I think they're always with us. And if you're aware of them you can keep them at bay. But the second you let your guard down, they have a wonderful opportunity of taking control. They can take control in very extreme measures or little tiny things can seep out like passive aggressive comments during a conversation. And Mm -hmm. I think what what I love that you drew attention to is your dark passenger. Uh, You know, if you're a fan of Dexter, that's what that is. And it's always there. So if you remember, um, you remember A Beautiful Mind? Did you ever see that? Yeah, 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 yeah. With uh, Russell Mm Crowe? So by the end of the movie, he's had a very long and and arduous journey with it. At the end of the movie, he's walking along and everything seems like, okay, happy ending, right? Yeah. And then you look over and you see Paul Bettany and uh, all of these characters that are in his head. You see them all about 50 feet away. And they're walking with him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very telling, uh, obviously in an extreme sense, but to a very minuscule degree, I think everybody has that. There's always somebody 50 feet away that you got to be aware of. Uh, yeah. And if you ignore them, if you ignore them, you never know when they come up, they'll, they'll come out of nowhere and surprise you. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like it's, it's, it's all about acknowledging those pieces of ourselves that we may not be all that happy exist, Mm -hmm. but if we just ignore it and don't like accept that it's there, then is it essentially has free reign to pop up whenever it wants to. Yeah. And And it shows uh, up in the strangest forms. It can be substance abuse. It can be pornography. It can be violence. It can be, um, you know, it can be emotional abuse. It can be, like emotional outbursts of what, what mm-hmm. those are all little things that, you know, you kind of look at that person and you go, what's your problem? No one's the villain of their own story. And if you look at, if you look at any kind of performance, I mean, this kind of, this ties it back into, to what we were talking about. If you look at any kind of performance where the villain is a really good actor uh-huh. or the villain has a really good backstory, yeah, you can look at them and you kind of go, yeah. Okay. I might. Yeah. Okay. Not, you know, I wouldn't kill all those people to do it, but I get it. I get what you're trying to accomplish. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I get the sense that when you talk about mental health, you're going to have extreme cases that require counseling and perhaps medication. But even mm-hmm. the smaller degree, everybody's dealing with that. So even you see some really, really horrible stuff. I, I wonder, you know, I, I, tend to, I tend to take a step back and go, all right, you're still responsible for what you did. But I know why you did it. Yeah. Or I have an I mean, idea of what you were dealing with. Yeah. And like you said, there are those extreme cases where some people, some people, you know, some people need a lot of help yeah. and that doesn't make them less human than, than, than anybody else, you know? And I just think that we generally speaking, the, the general, we are just so afraid of admitting, of admitting and staring at staring the issue of mental illness in the face. It's so much easier to ignore, right? than yeah. it is to try to try to solve things. And then you can get into the conversation about like, well, I know like every, everyone out there wants to say, we don't have a gun problem. We have a mental health problem. And it's like, okay, cool. So fucking solve the mental health problem because right now we're not seeing it. You know, I mean, there was that big issue that the, the, the I think it was JFK, you know, back in JFK's administration when they closed all of the asylums right? They closed mm-hmm. them all. They got rid of them all and sent them all out into the street with this, this thought that like the community would take care of these people who needed some serious help. And like, that's when you saw like the homeless population rise. That's when you saw all these people who actually need help, can't afford it, can't do it on their own, left to their own devices and instilling fear in us, quote, normal people who just see them as all, see all of them as lunatics, right? How fucking unfair is that? You know, it's It's like, yeah, it's like saying to a baby, welcome to the world, figure out how to walk on your own, figure out how to feed yourself on your own. Good luck. And if you don't do it, it's your fault. Right. Yeah. No, I think you you nailed it. If you think you got everything going for you and everything is fine, you know, you're, you're kind of leaning back and relaxing on the fact that you're not a horrible person or yeah, you're just you're a normal person. You're a normal guy, a normal girl. Your children will mimic you. Mm-hmm. And if at any moment you turn to your children and you form a pointing finger, mm. that's the moment you got to go, wait a minute. Mm. Where do you think they're getting it from? Yeah. Fuck, and man. That is that is a mind job. To, to have what you think is a normal conversation from a position of authority. Well, one, they don't have any context. Yeah. They don't have the history of how you learned that lesson. They don't even know what they're doing. All they know is that they're aping the one human who they have as a model for how to be and what to do. Like if you, you use it before, like if we never walked in front of our children, would they want to walk? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it, it, it gets back to, that's a really, really big mirror is when you have children and they start doing the things that you do and you start going, shit, mm. I have a problem that I got to work on. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I can see that, man. I can see that. Uh, I mean, so shit. I, I applaud. I, I applauded it. I applauded what you're doing. I applaud anybody that goes on a journey of self-discovery where they try and think to themselves is what I'm projecting out there. Is, is it being received by the, is my performance being received by the audience the way that I am putting it out there? And I think they, they call that emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm fuck. I got, I got, I mean, we all have 
so many miles to go, right? I mean, the, 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 like I am, I am, I am more, I'm a, I'm a more evolved me now than I was 15, 20, even two years ago. I'm a more evolved me, but I still have so much further to go. And before I, I feel like I'm a, 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 a it's never going to stop. Right. No. To think that there's an end. There's no journey. Yeah. There's no destination. Yeah. You're, you're kidding yourself. If you think that like, if you ever like look yourself in the mirror and go like, yeah, all right, I arrived. I'm a good human being. Fuck you. No, you're not like <laughs> you're going to be trying. We should all, we should all be trying to be a good human being till the day we fucking die. And if we think that we made it before then, then we probably are terrible people. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that I'm trying to teach. I'm trying to ingrain in my children and and the people that I get a chance to talk to is even if you do reach a destination, it, what, what, what happens if you get there? So let's, let's go into a hypothetical scenario. You yeah. get what you wanted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now what? Yeah. The, it's, the, you know what it is? It's finishing a Netflix marathon and you finally get to the last episode of the last show and it's over. Yeah. And that feeling you get when that little window doesn't pop up going, playing next episode in three, oh, two. Oh, God, it's the fucking you worst. Get of, the show is over. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what that, it is to achieve oh my a goal. God. <laughs> rather than position yourself as, we're just going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> That's what that feeling is. So it's very oh, dangerous wow. to take a, a destination mindset because that's what it is. That's a pretty fucking, that's a pretty fucking incredible way of putting it, man. I think that's a good place for us to, uh, to button this one up. Yeah. Let's call it, man. Good talking to you, man. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad we got back together and, uh, and, uh, shot the shit a little bit longer. All right, brother. Good talking All right, to you. Take man. it easy. Yep. See you later. Bye. This place is dead anyway, man.